Welcome to our Catechism class. It's a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help you learn Christian doctrine with a warm and practical application. Each lesson has its own study guide, and the web link to find that guide can be found in the episode notes. Okay, let's start the lesson. So welcome to our Catechism class. We're still looking at the sacraments. We're on the last lap, as it were. And we've been looking at the Lord's Supper and learning about the true meaning of the bread and wine that we see spread before us on the communion tables of our churches. There's one final consideration, and it's a bit of a delicate matter. We have to ask the question, who may come to the table? and partake in the Lord's Supper. Now, traditionally, the answer to that question has been like a multiple-choice exam. You just tick a box. You either believe in open communion, where no one is barred from attending, or you have a closed communion, where only those who meet certain criteria can attend and partake. So the Catechism steers us between those two options on a moderate course, And it does so with great warmth and encouragement in two questions and answers. Question 81 and question 82. And these two questions will form the basis of our lesson in this episode. I'm Bob McAvoy and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Okay, before we begin, take out your catechism and read the two questions in Lord's Day 30, question 81 and question 82, and then open your Bible and read once again from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 to verse 34. Pause the recording just now, read the catechism, read the scriptures, and then come back and start the recording again. Right, here's our first problem, or our first question rather. Who is worthy to come to the Lord's Supper? Well, of course, we all know that only Christians, only believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, only those trusting in him alone by faith, are invited by the Lord himself to his table. But there are conditions, as our catechism will point out. Question 81, who are to come to the table of the Lord? The answer is, those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites, and those who do not repent, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So that answer forces us to ask, When are we worthy enough to take the Lord's Supper? And the simple answer is never. 
We are all unworthy communicants. When I was a teenager, I had a friend, a professing Christian, who went to one of the local gospel halls. One Lord's Day he came to church with me and sat through the service and was quite engaged with the hymns and the sermon. But when it came time for communion, I was surprised to see that he allowed the bread and the wine to pass by him. I thought this may have been because he wasn't a church member, and maybe he thought that our communion was only for people who were communicant members. So I asked him about it afterwards, just to assure him that it would have been fine for him to take communion in our church. He told me that the reason he hadn't taken communion that morning was because he felt he wasn't worthy enough to do so. Now here's the point. We could never clean up our lives enough or make ourselves righteous enough to come into the presence of Christ. Even as Christians, we're sinners and we remain sinners until the day we die. And even our best works, even our religious works, our righteousnesses are tainted by sin because we are sinners. It is as sinners, saved by grace, that we come to the Lord's table. So question one teaches us a proper approach to communion. There is a requirement to have a correct attitude to our human sin, even as Christians. We must not come to the Lord's table proud of ourselves, pleased with ourselves, or or even enjoying the sin that we have partaken in. We come mourning over sin. We come unhappy with the sins that we commit daily. We come sorrowful and we come repentant. And our catechist tells us that those who should come around the Lord's table are those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins. So as we come to the table, we come in humble acknowledgement and confession of our sin, examining ourselves and repenting of it. So Paul and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26 down to verse 32 exhorts us to examine ourselves. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself And so let him eat of that bread, and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So we must have a proper approach to communion, and an acknowledgement of Christ's righteousness. The reason we are able to come at all as repentant sinners to the Lord's feast is not because we are good enough, or because we deserve to be there, but because Jesus is good enough. It is in Christ alone that we are considered righteous before God. Our sins and our shortfallings are covered by the atoning work of Christ at Calvary. So the Catechism says, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. And surely we come with a longing for sanctification and holiness. Repentance at the Lord's Supper would be pointless if it wasn't accompanied by a desire for personal reformation. Our catechism is the most personal of all the Reformed confessions and statements of faith. 
Not only does it teach us biblical doctrine, a systematic theology, but it is deeply experiential. It challenges us personally to respond to what we believe by living out our faith, by deepening our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so, as we see before us the symbols that point us to Calvary, to Christ's death and his resurrection, we ought to realise how great was the cost that our Saviour paid to redeem us. His own suffering, his death on the cross, his burial. And just as in contemplating our immense forgiveness, we're motivated to forgive others, similarly, in considering the cross, we are motivated to lay down our own lives for Christ, to take up our cross daily, to crucify those fleshly lusts that cause us to sin, or as the Catechist puts it, who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. Galatians 2 and 20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that liveth, but Christ that lives in me. So we should leave the communion service more secure in our faith in Christ, more determined to live for him. Second Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The Belgic Confession says, In short, by the use of this holy sacrament, we are moved to a fervent love of God and our neighbours. So the Catechist teaches us a proper approach to communion and an acknowledgement of Christ's righteousness and that we are to have a longing for sanctification and holiness. But there's also a stern warning against falsehood. There's no opportunity for pretense at the Lord's Supper. If you come to the Lord's table with an unrepentant heart and with unconfessed sin, that you're not prepared to admit before the Lord, you may well be able to fool the church or the pastor, who, by the way, is also a sinner who must repent. But you certainly won't fool the God who searches our hearts, the God who knows us inside out, the God who one day will judge us. So the Catechist says, But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. He bases this on Paul's strict warning in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30 to 31. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. So when the Lord's Supper is taking place in the church, every Christian is invited to come. All those who love the Lord and are trusting in him as Saviour, actually not just invited, but commanded by the Lord to come. The issue really is how we should come. For we can't come without serious self-examination, without openness before God, without asking the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to reveal to us any unconfessed sin, and then to sincerely repent of that sin before we eat and drink. And if we come any other way, with pride or with stubborn rebellion, then we leave ourselves open to judgment 
and its consequences. So we know who should come to the Lord's Supper and how they should come. But who may come? Is there anyone who should be excluded from the Lord's Supper? In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21 and 22, we read these words. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All that we have said before when we considered question 81 is fine, when we know who is gathered with us around the table of the Lord, when they are our brothers and sisters in the Lord, fellow church members, people we know, people that we know to have a profession of faith, Christian believers. All that we have learned applies to them. Paul says, let a man examine himself, and all of that should be laid out before them in exhortation at every single communion season. But that leaves us with two other groups of people who may well show up on that communion Sabbath morning. Firstly, those who are first-time or casual visitors. People we don't know. And secondly, those who we actually do know to be living in open sin or to have false or heretical views. So let's think about those two groups. What about visitors? A Christian man from Belfast was on holiday at an English seaside resort, and on the Lord's Day he wanted to attend a church of his own denomination. But when he arrived, one of the men asked him if he was staying for communion, and if he was, did he have a letter of commendation from his local church? He confessed that he did not, but he explained that he was an elder in his own church. However, that wasn't acceptable, and he left to go elsewhere. As he was getting into his car, he happened to see a lady from his very own church making her way along the street to the church that he had just left. He greeted her and asked her if she had a letter of commendation with her. She too had not. Well, he said, you'll need one if you want to take communion in there. But look, I'm an elder. I'll write one for you. So he retrieved a notebook from the car and wrote her a letter, explaining that she was a Christian sister in good standing. She was admitted. He wasn't. Now, that story is true. But anyone looking on that incident would think that Christians were a little bit strange, to say the least, given the ridiculousness of that episode. It really is a kind of legalism, isn't it? Going to ridiculous extremes, and it's confusion, which we should never permit in worship. After all, Paul sternly warns us that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. We really have to leave it to the Lord to judge in those situations. Even those who have commendations from a local church could be steeped in some hidden sin that perhaps their own local assembly knows nothing about. Best practice might be to have a quiet chat with a visitor. Just to ask them if they intend to take communion and simply ask them if they are a believer. And if they say that they are, then they must hear the exhortation to repentance that every other professed believer must hear 
before they commune with the Lord and with the other believers. And if there is any doubt, or if they decide not to participate, then there is no reason that they shouldn't remain in the church, observe the sacrament, and simply let the elements pass them by. And no one in the church should pass any remarks about that. And as we have already seen, the sacraments are visual aids to help us to understand the gospel message. So we've thought about people whose confession of faith we know, and then first-time casual visitors. But there's a third group of people that we need to think about. And that's our second group in this section. How do we deal with people who are living in open rebellion and sin? or whose doctrine falls short of orthodoxy. In question 82, the Catechist asks this, Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper, who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? The answer to that question is no, for then the covenant of God would be profaned, and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, According to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such person by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. And that brings us to the subject of church discipline. The Puritans used to speak of fencing the table, making sure that profane or openly sinful people would be prevented from coming to the Lord's table, for they have no right to be there. Psalm 50 and 16. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldst take my covenant in thy mouth? It would be good to read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 to 17, just to find out what God thinks of people who attempt to worship him while living in rebellion and sin. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of your bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Paul exhorts Christians to examine themselves before they eat, and so to be led to repentance. But he warns that if we do not do so and come before the Lord, we will be judged. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31 to 32, he writes, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. If a man or a woman won't deal with their sin, it's the church's task to sit in judgment on that person, 
so that they can be excluded from the table, so that they can be chastened by the Lord, and so that they will hopefully turn from their wickedness, and so that they will not be condemned along with the ungodly world and be lost forever. Sometimes church discipline can be hurtful. Sometimes can be sore. Sometimes it can be hard to administer. But if it brings home to the sinner the seriousness of their sin and leads them to repentance and to bring forth the fruits of that repentance, then they will have been saved from an awful lost eternity. So church discipline at the Lord's Supper must never be withheld. It must be administered with love for the lost, for eternal souls are at stake. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 Brethren, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. James 5 and 19 to 20 My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And that's what the Catechist calls the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that's something we look a wee bit closer at in our next lesson. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.